Hello there. Welcome to the third episode of System Science and Public Health podcast series. I'm your host, Petra Meyer. I'm Professor of Public Health at the MRC CSO Social and Public Health Sciences Unit at the University of Glasgow. And I'm also a director of the Cypher Consortium. Cypher is a collaboration between seven universities and three government partners that aims to develop system science evidence to support health and well-being in all policies. In this podcast series, I'm speaking to scientists, policymakers, and practitioners who work in this space. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Professor Robin Pershaus, who is joining us on Zoom today. Robin is a professor of decision sciences in the Department of Automatic Control and Systems Engineering at the University of Sheffield. Robin and I have worked together on and off for many years, and he's now my partner in crime as co-director of the Cypher Consortium. It's lovely to have the opportunity to ask him questions we rarely get time to talk about in our everyday work. Welcome, Robin. Hi, Petra. First of all, I'd like to ask, what do you think can public health science bring to control systems engineering? And what can control systems engineering bring to public health? So I should probably start by saying that I am a, a control engineer by background. So my undergraduate degree was in control systems engineering back in the dim and distant past, the late 1990s. And the department that I work in now, Automatic Control and Systems Engineering, or AXI, as we like to call it, um, is that department where I was an undergraduate and um, where I now teach concepts from control engineering. And it's probably worth starting by thinking about what, what control engineering actually is for those who don't understand it because it is quite an obscure discipline. So really control engineering is, is all about systems, thinking about how to characterize systems, how to model them by which we would mean express them in mathematics, um, how to realize them as physical things because we are engineers. So often the systems that we deal with are physical engineered systems. And so we might think about how do we intervene in those systems? How do we make them do things? How do we uh, measure things or sense what's going on in the system? And that brings us to the control bit, if you like, of control systems engineering, which is how do we control or influence systems to get them to behave in ways that are desirable um, and maybe even optimum? And control engineering is, is quite a kind of physical sciences discipline in a way. That's where it kind of came from, although it's increasingly moving more into worlds that involve uh, human elements, what we might call cyber physical systems, where you have uh, machines or computers working with humans or in the same kind of environment together. And so that presents particular challenges to control engineering now. So in terms of what control engineering can bring to public health. I think perhaps one of the main benefits is just really characterizing systems. So public health is increasingly thinking about complexity and about systems and about complex systems. You know, this is quite a trendy phrase that's used within public health at the moment. I think where control engineering can help is trying to actually characterize what that means for the systems under study. So in Cypher, for example, we look at an inclusive economy system. So if we think about that as a complex system, what are we really talking about in terms of that complexity? 
uh, and and about the systems you know so where are things like the dynamics where do things change over time in the system if they're complex does that mean that they're non-linear so there's kind of interactions between uh, components that don't mean that a step change in one leads to a step change in the other is it something more complicated than that and if it is then in what way is it more complicated so what control engineering can do is help to actually characterize some of that uh, in a way that hopefully would then go on to be beneficial for um, analyzing public health systems and uh, into finding out uh, the best ways of intervening in them in terms of what public health can bring to control engineering i think it's important to recognize um, that control engineering is a pretty quantitative discipline and it can be quite data hungry it's not particularly familiar with systems where data can be a bit more sparse perhaps it can be biased uh, and where it's kind of a little bit um, ad hoc almost uh, in terms of uh, the sort of evidence that's available about those systems it's not always trivial to to measure things in in public health and so that's that's quite a challenge to control engineering so it's something really for control engineering to think about is how to operate in systems that are less data rich another thing i think that public health can bring is that the the fact that it's it, that it's about the public it's about people uh, and it's about uh, humans and their agency, their ability to react to situations and to change course. For physical systems, you know, they don't do that. When we look at them, they don't suddenly decide to do something different because we're looking at them or we suggested looking at them or something like that. Uh, obviously in public health, that's a really big part of the system is human agency. So I think that really thinking about that as well can help control engineering quite a lot, particularly as we move into worlds where humans and physical systems are more entwined anyway. Um, so I think there's a lot of a lot to be gained from from bringing uh, these disciplines together uh, in ways that would benefit both of them. And hopefully we'll see some of that in Cypher over the next few years. It's really interesting. What do you think we gain by quantifying a complex system and what do we lose? So in terms of gains, a potential gain, but I think people could argue with this, is that um, when you quantify something, you kind of bring it more into the, the open in terms of what people's understandings are of the thing that they're talking about. So if we think about a com public health as a, as a complex system, and people talk about that a lot, but it's not always clear what, what it means. But if you start to quantify that, by which I mean that you start to try and express it formally in um, mathematics, or you start to say that you want to measure particular things, then you make a little bit more transparent what it is that you're trying to say is complex or you're trying to say is a system. So, um, you know, part of that quantification would involve defining what the boundaries are of the system that we're looking at. And that can be very challenging, you know, particularly for very broad systems like an inclusive economy, these that is also open systems. So there's things coming in externally that can affect uh, the system. You know, if you're Sheffield City Council and you're looking at the local economy of the city, 
that's a very open system. There's all sorts of things coming in that are not uh, immediately within the jurisdiction of the city that are going to affect all sorts of things there. So I think really the gains come in making transparent things that are going on in the system and the understanding of that system. In terms of what is lost though, when you quantify something, you're always kind of abstracting from from the real thing and normally simplifying it. And that kind of abstraction and simplification tends to focus on particular aspects of the system that somebody thinks are important. So, you know, particular parts of the economy. So if we're thinking about an inclusive economy, maybe we'd be focusing very much on employment related factors and components within that system. A potential danger of doing that is that that kind of focus, bringing things into focus and, and letting other things kind of fall out of focus, is that we forget about those other things that have fallen out of focus. And they might turn out to be important because they're important to some people in and of themselves, but, but we haven't been talking to those people potentially. But, and so we've been kind of neglectful of some different perspectives on the system. Or it could be that actually no one's particularly interested in those things, but it turns out that they have massive gearing effects on the system. Yeah. So what happens in those areas that nobody's really interested about, if something changes there, then it might change things all over the place. Okay. So th these are the sort of dangers of performing a quantification is that we, our focus becomes uh, too strong in a particular area uh, to the detriment of other areas. There's other things that we can potentially lose when we think about quantifying systems, which is that in terms of decision-making, it may be that there isn't that much traction to be gained from quantifying systems. So, you know, a lot of decision-makers are perhaps more comfortable with, with rhetoric and uh, kind of non-quantified ways of expressing the benefits or otherwise of particular uh, policy courses. And so if we quantify those things, then we might reduce the traction that they have from in, in rhetorical terms, you know, their, their, their appeal in other ways could actually be lost, uh, lost. They could lose some of their luster, if you like. Um, and I think we have to be mindful of that. And, and on Cypher, you know, we know that that's something that we need to be mindful of is the extent to which quantifying and evidencing what's going on in a system would actually uh, have any tangible impacts on the decisions that people are going to make. So how can we help our policy colleagues, especially in terms of dealing with the uncertainties in their complex systems? It's often said that policymakers don't like to deal with uncertainty and, and don't like it when you present uncertainties in, uh, in modelling. I'm not convinced that that's quite true, but certainly there needs to be careful consideration of how uncertainties are communicated. Because if you're looking for a, um, a course of action that's strong and precise, then normally you like to focus on specific numbers and the idea that that might be fuzzier or vaguer isn't necessarily helpful to kind of forcefully pursuing a, a course of action. Of course, we want to make sure that people don't forcefully pursue courses of action that aren't going to turn out to be the right ones. And 
dealing with uncertainty is a way of trying to avoid uh, some of that. Uh, really, there's there's two main ways of thinking about uncertainty in a in a system. We call these um, probabilistic and possibilistic. And the the probabilistic pathway tries to to put probabilities or kind of chances on uh, things happening in the system or things um, being in a particular way in the system. Because when we measure them, we might not be able to measure them with accuracy. So there's a kind of, uh, and if that's a kind of sample-based measuring we've done, then there's a kind of process of moving from a sample to the whole population that we want to look at that involves some kind of uh, uncertainty. And that's probabilistic uncertainty. We can deal with that in models by um, looking at how that uncertainty flows through from the model inputs uh, all the way through to the model outputs, the things that we're interested in and the outcomes that we're interested in. One challenge there is that often that kind of uncertainty gets broader and broader. So we end up with quite a lot of uncertainty on the outputs. The other pathway that I mentioned was uh, kind of possibilistic. And I think this is increasingly gaining favour, actually, in kind of policy analytics. And this is the idea that there's uh, a kind of a certain number of different kinds of future that might pan out. Sometimes these things are called scenarios so or things that people are worrying about. So the future might look like A or it might look like B. And what we want to understand is under both of those things, uh, what happens? OK. Now, the nice thing about working with that kind of representation of our uncertainties is that we can say, well, if you're interested in intervening in, in this particular way in a system, what will it mean uh, under that future A that we talked about? But what would it also mean under the future B or under the future C? And if we kind of have got quite good coverage of what those alternative futures look like, we can try and assess any particular course of action under all of those and then see which courses of action work kind of well, but only in one future, but would be lead to really bad outcomes across other ones. Or are there other um, policies that uh, what, we, what we might call robust to those different futures, meaning that they all that they kind of work OK? in all of them. They might not be magnificent in any particular one, but they're okay across all of them. And that's quite useful information to know, because as a decision maker, it depends what kind of decision maker you are. So if you're a kind of really risk-seeking decision maker, you might be happy with one uh, intervention that you know is going to excel if one of those futures comes out to be true, because you're, you know, you're prepared to put your bets onto there. But maybe if you're a, a risk-averse decision maker, you might not want to put all of your, your chances on one of those futures for a good outcome. You might be prepared to settle for, um, for a different kind of uh, policy option that doesn't perform as well in any one, but performs kind of OK across all of the futures. So that, I think that's quite an interesting way of thinking about uncertainty and one that is not particularly uh, used, actually, within policy uh, circles at the moment. In your experience, is increased transparency about such benefits, costs and trade-offs between different decision options or, or futures 
helpful when it comes to the practice of decision making? Or can it get in the way of getting things done? So if by increased transparency we mean that we're going to build computer models or we're going to um, gather and analyse um, evidence about the, the, the policy that we're interested in, um, then it's important to recognise that there's some costs to that. The costs in terms of how long it takes to gather that information and how expensive it is to gather that information as well. You know, to, to develop a, a policy model carefully so that it doesn't contain um, mistakes in it um, needs a bit of time. And that it kind of depends on how, how complex the system is and how richly you want to characterise it. But it could easily take six months to build a policy model. And you might not have six months for the sort of decision that you're interested in as a policymaker. So, you know, if we if we look back over um, the last 12 months at, at the uh, COVID pandemic um, and the role that models have played in that, I think uh, perhaps an area of, of disappointment among policy modelers was the kind of inability to respond rapidly uh, because the models weren't there. They didn't exist. Okay, there were models that related to different kinds of pandemic and they were adapted and reused um, but they weren't models developed specifically for COVID um, and so you you know as a, as a you know where are you as a policymaker? You, you you can't sit there and not do anything um, as this unfolds while you wait for um, an accurate and robust policy model so those kinds of costs that need to be born in order to get good answers, in order to get kind of increased transparency about what all of the different outcomes are, can take time. And I think, if, you know, again, thinking about the pandemic, that I still see no models that provide uh, transparency across the whole range of outcomes. Yes, we've got ones that relate to the disease itself and um, its transmission through a community, but we don't have uh, models for all the other types of things that are happening in the economy and to people's mental health and so on. You know, the, the, we don't have universal models that provide all of this information. So I think, yes, in that sense, it gets in the way of, of getting things done because you have to wait. The other, the other way in which, of course, it might get in the way is that it could be potentially naive to uh, surface um, particular trade-offs uh, across outcomes expecting that this uh, the, the policy debate is in some way going to be respectful to the science that, un, that under, underlies uh, those trade-offs. I think that can, that can be quite naive and can clearly, again, potentially get in the way of making progress. So if you, you, know, you, you think you've, you've produced this, this wonderful objective policy model that, uh, that follows scientific conventions, and demonstrates potentially difficult trade-offs between certain outcomes, it may well be that that is not necessarily helpful to achieving good results in the end, because people with coming at it from different subjective uh, points of view um, can use that information to their own ends. And so there does need to be care, I think, in, in, in that it's 
I think it's very difficult, and I, I certainly wouldn't uh, claim to be to be any expert, or even maybe to be to not be naive in in think still thinking about um, how we present trade-offs between uh, policy options. It's it's a very difficult area uh, to get right. Brings me to my next question, and I think that might be a bit of a heretic one for uh, this field of research, but. The outputs of decision modeling often involve some kind of tool or dashboard. And we keep hearing quite a lot about dashboard fatigue and the solution is probably not ever better and cleverer dashboards, although I'm not sure. What do you think? And is there a way to overcome some of, some of the issues there? I haven't actually uh, heard of dashboard fatigue, uh, but I've certainly come across cynicism in terms of what computer-based decision support tools can do for policymakers. I think there's lots of different aspects to this. I mean, if, if we're talking about a dashboard as a concise summary of information about a policy problem that um, perhaps gets updated uh, regularly, then designing that well uh, is going to be important and certainly I've seen some some dashboards I've probably even made some myself that that are not that great you know that <laughs> that don't really provide the information that, that's needed in, in in a way that can be done most concisely so there's ways of building that I mean that I think an important aspect to think about is is the co-production of that and to understand what the requirements are from the people who are actually going to be using it yeah and that's that's both the people who will populate it with the information that it's going to contain but then also the people who uh, rely on that information for some of their decision making and um as a modeler i'm, I'm very aware that it's, it's it's all too easy to become too obsessed with the model if you like and developing the the perfect model and displaying all sorts of things and doing that in all sorts of fancy ways but if you if it's a decision analytic model then that's kind of departing i think from its real purpose which is to provide concisely the right information to answer the question that is being asked so kind of understanding what that question is um, that policy colleagues have is really really important to uh, framing what would go into any kind of dashboard or summary of information. In terms of kind of policy tools more broadly, so the kind of, you know, um, and by which I really mean kind of pieces of software or web-based systems that uh, policymakers can perhaps interact with, can play around with different policy levers and, and see what happens. I think one of the big challenges there is that um investment in policy tools is is quite ad hoc you know people have a need uh for some kind of information about a problem and so they commission some work for that particular problem and then they've got an, then some other people have got another type of policy problem and they commission some work for that and then what you end up with is this kind of um, strange universe if you like of um of different tools that um, are all different to each other, that, that aren't interoperable, so they, they're not able to talk to each other. And they all think they present in their totality quite a confusing picture if you're a policy analyst or a policy maker. I think that's really difficult 
challenge to deal with because to do things differently would would need us to for example set out some standards you know or some guidance or protocols for how a decision tool should be uh, put together and there isn't really a lot of that out there at the moment uh, and you'd also need to kind of motivate people to, to follow it even if you did develop um, different protocols or um, guides for building such tools and then also you'd have you know that doing that kind of that building a more straightforward uh, ecosystem of, of policy tools is probably quite a large investment uh, and it's an investment that likely sits outside any particular policy question you know it's quite it's, it's quite a big thing and you want it you actually as you design it you'd want it to be something that could cover a whole range of different policy questions um, so I think that you know as, as often is the case the best way to overcome it would be to uh, to invest in the development of those kinds of um, protocols and kind of tool ecosystems if you like uh, in a way that's much more designed where there's a lot more intent but to do that needs somebody who's actually got the, the long-term vision uh, I say someone, someone who's prepared to fund it, who's got the long-term vision uh, to achieve that. And also uh, patient policymakers who are prepared actually to wait for tools to be developed in this coherent system rather than just something ad hoc that they can get uh, much quicker. So, I, you know, um, doing that is, is, a, is a real challenge as well, I think, for, um, for, the, for the modelling community. Um, but I think, you know, unless we grapple with that we will end up with this this kind of kind of world of many many different dashboards and tools uh you know that's not going to go away for the foreseeable future i don't think that brings us nicely to my last question um how do you think we can build that kind of capacity in public health modeling and complexity research or maybe it's not limited to public health maybe it's you know those kind of models to rule them all um so what, what do you see as the main steps we need to take to really make inroads in that respect so i think the situation that we have now is that um people with a background in complex systems have typically come from highly quantitative disciplines uh, and they've had their educations in those disciplines so um, you know like me really you know so I in 1995 I, I started out um, as, a, as an undergraduate doing my control systems engineering degree and you know I, I worked principally in, in, in you know I learned principally in a world of, of engineered systems and then similarly, you know, if you think about kind of people in in uh, in kind of uh, public health, or as you say, other kind of um, more more social science disciplines, I guess, principally, um, they come from from a background um, that I think probably doesn't think about complex systems in a in a quantitative way so 
they they may they may certainly have quantitative education and capabilities in terms of statistical models, but typically the kind of education they've had has, has not thought about systems, it's not thought about dynamical systems, and it's not really thought about complex systems. And so you've kind of got people who've kind of grown up at the moment who are who are quite a long way away from each other. And I think research programs like Cypher are really trying to bring those people together, um, at least in a multidisciplinary way. So where they're bringing their own disciplinary expertise to try and solve a, a collective problem like we're doing on Cypher for something like an inclusive economy and understanding how to reduce health inequalities, uh, promote healthy life expectancies with the policy partners that we're working with. I think certainly I would like that to be to to become a kind of interdisciplinary endeavor where we can fuse the different perspectives coming from those disciplines together in a way um, that produces something unique, if you like. I think that's challenging when you've got people who've who've already spent a lot of time in in disciplinary silos. So we can do that, and I think that will build some capacity. But I think where capacity really has to be built is 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 from the ground up. Um, so we really need to be looking at um, uh, educational opportunities that introduce these kind of multiple perspectives much earlier. And I think we can see a bit of that in um, things like. Um, doctoral training centres, like like the one the the Welcome Centre at Sheffield, um, that are that are bringing uh, people from from more traditional perhaps or actually a wide you know range of backgrounds together to focus on um, health economics and decision modelling. So I, you know that that's part of what helps. I think bringing that again into masters level programmes can be helpful. And, you know, I think it'd be really nice eventually to see kind of undergraduate programs in system science that take a, a, a much more mixed methods perspective on complex systems. And I don't think that those, those particularly exist at the moment, at least in the UK. I think I was um, a while ago now, I was... I was involved in a kind of collaborative exchange with universities in in brazil in um in Belo Horizonte, uh, who had developed a uh, they were systems engineers and they had developed a system science degree program that was was much more than a, a physics and uh natural sciences perspective on systems it came with all of the kind of uh, social systems and human agency side of it as as a key part of the parcel and other kind of you know getting people to think about what they're they're doing in in reflexively so um, there were kind of those kind of action research as part of that program there was philosophy of science modules as part of that program is very exciting some of the action research that they did probably more action action learning really I guess was actually going into kind of corrective institutional settings and working uh, with people in those settings as part of their undergraduate degree programs. 
Uh, and these are systems engineers. Yeah? So these are people, if they've been doing that in the UK, that have just been looking at kind of uh, robotics, perhaps, or, um, you know, some kind of uh, uh, process control system. You know, these are people working in a, in a institutional setting in, in a different country. I found that really quite exciting. I, I, it's something I've discussed as well, you know, within uh, the programs that we do here at Sheffield. But I guess the, you know, the question is we have to somehow develop the demand for that. You know, if you wanted to run it as an undergraduate program in the U in the UK, then you need to be able to get 16 and 17 year olds interested in that as a subject. And so there's a lot of a lot of work to do there. But I think that in the longer term, that will be how we build. Uh, capacity and complexity uh, research. I think that there's there are opportunities as well with the kind of the increasing pre uh, prevalence and presence, if you like, of the ideas of artificial intelligence, machine learning, data sciences. You know, it's kind of entered a lot of the regular conversation. Um, so I think there is kind of excitement building there, and if if that can be brought to bear on important problems. In, in public health, then perhaps we can inspire a, a new generation to kind of come with this really exciting uh, view of complexity that, yes, carries that quantitative element, but is also more qualitative and nuanced in the way in which it thinks about, about systems. I think that would be really exciting. Thank you very much, Robin. That was really interesting. If you'd like to read more about Robin's work, you can find his profile on the University of Sheffield website. And if you'd like to find out more about our Cypher programme, or you want to subscribe to future episodes of this podcast, go to cypher.ac.uk. Cypher is spelled with an S for sugar. You can also find out more about the work of the Social and Public Health Sciences Unit on our University of Glasgow website. Thank you for listening to our third episode, and I hope you can join us next time. Goodbye.